0: Hello, and welcome to Kazingram Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to having honest conversations on the issues most important to life and to our culture. You can find us online at kazingram.com. That's K-A-Z-I-N-G-R-A-M.com. We hope you enjoy this episode. Be sure to like and subscribe.
1: That was Amos Dober with the introduction. Our guest today is my friend Igor Gancharov. Igor is a policy analyst currently working for the Canadian Federal Government, In this episode, we discuss the failure of the drug policy in Canada and USA, safe injection sites, the sociology and psychology of drug addiction, the failure of the war on drugs and prohibition in general. Please welcome Igor to the Kuzingram Dialogue. Thank you so much for being here, man. Oh, you're very welcome. I've been excited to talk to you all week.
0: <laughs> yeah, man, I've been uh, I've been excited to kind of give you my views on uh, this this topic. It's kind of I think it's an important topic. So
1: it, it, it certainly is. I ha- I actually had some conversations with some friends, um, and I told them, "Oh, yeah, I'm having a conversation with my friend Igor on drug policy and drug addiction." And they're like, "Oh, okay." Now they they're all very interested in what you have to say um and something that something that comes up frequently during these conversations is people people want to know especially in Canada because we have um safe injection sites right is you have two sides you have one who people who will say okay this is you know safe injection sites are just immoral and wrong because you're encouraging addiction and then others who are like no safe injection sites actually are safe and they they are they, they're a way to help these people who are addicted to drugs um, slowly get off. And I, I, I'm very curious to know what your thoughts are on safe injection sites.
0: Well, um, I guess this comes down to the approach you want to take to address addiction and the policy. So uh, it all comes down to basically like understanding what addiction is and how we as a society, and, and frankly, most countries in, in the world look at addiction in my opinion, they look at addiction incorrectly, right? So I guess just to, just to say like, what do I think of safe, safe injection sites? I think, I think safe injection sites are harm reduction. And um, I think they're one of the best ways to, uh, to address heroin addiction, because I mean, there's a different ways you can look at it. If you look at it an, at an with an altruistic um, utilitarian view, you can see that uh, by having safe injection sites, um, you're actually saving society money, right? I mean, there's clearly a knee-jerk reaction when people think of safe injection sites because like, you know, you have an area where heroin addicts are gonna go and shoot up, right? So it's, you know, generally speaking, people don't want this in their communities, right? It's just, it's uh, it's, it's, it's it's a knee-jerk reaction. But the reality is, um, I completely disagree that safe injection sites encourage people to use heroin. Right? That's 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 absurd. Heroin users will use heroin whether it's in a safe injection site, in a basement, or in an alley, um, or in their homes. Right? It's it's um, addiction is not like I guess what I what I'd like to explain is um, addictions uh, demand curve is is inelastic, meaning no matter what you do to try to discourage people from using drugs, whether it's laws, et cetera, it's not gonna change drug use. I mean, we've had over a hundred years of prohibition, hmm. which has been an utter failure, right? I mean, we, um, addiction doesn't work. It doesn't, uh, laws and uh, jail time doesn't necessarily reduce drug addiction rates at all, actually, because the mind of an addict doesn't work like that. It, he, he's not thinking of consequences, And Someone who's addicted, uh, is really only thinking about um, about getting the the drug because of um, you know drugs release dopamine, drugs hijack the dopamine reward system in your brain. Dopamine is is um, is what you need in order to kind of is what motivates us in life, generally speaking, right? So it's like the last thing uh, last thing an addict is thinking when he wakes up in the morning is oh, um, the government uh, now made it made it more. Uh, Higher jail times for drug use, right? Yeah. I, I better stop using. That, that that doesn't happen, right? So, I don't I don't believe that safe injection sites um, promote heroin use. There, if if anything, it just it it reduces harm, right? So you have a place where the person is less likely to overdose because of tainted drugs. They have a where a, a place where if something does happen, there's doctors on site. A place where needle needles are, I think are given out there. So. Uh, you have, um, a, you know, basically safer injections, so less uh, spread of uh, intravenous-related illnesses, right? You know, HIV, hepatitis, you name it. So I mean, as much as people think that, um, as much as people think that safe injection sites are, you know, are, are dirty or promote heroin use, they're really a benefit on society in terms of uh, the cost society will have to pay in the long run it's 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 utilitarian wise it's it's cheaper to uh deal with addicts this way than it is um than than it is by kind of pushing them under underground and i mean we've uh we've seen this through uh i'll give you an example of switzerland in the in the 90s had a really bad issue related to um related to heroin addiction Mm. and um they were, you know, used prohibition. They used the typical typical policies related to uh, how to how to stop addiction, and none of this worked, right? They have a, they had a horrible uh, horrible heroin rates, uh, drug crimes were through the roof, petty crimes on the street as well, um, uh, I guess drug related sex crimes as well. Uh, so what they did is they opened these free heroin maintenance centers. They tried to they they did. Um, Harm reduction policy instead of prohibition, and what these uh, open, what these free heroin maintenance centers did is they supplied heroin. Uh, it was a place where addicts were not treated as criminals, but like rehabilitated. So uh, they were stabilized there. Uh, they were provided methadone. They were uh, they they had access to clean, safe injection, uh, medical supervision, like we talked about, and mm. social workers who helped them get uh, housing and work. And uh, basically, the results was that. There was like a significant drop in drug crime, drug-related sex work, HIV rates, heroin overdose by fifty percent fell, death, like fell by fifty percent. Mm-hmm. Heroin rates essentially just dropped, and two now at this point, two thirds of the population, um, some seventy percent of all heroin users in Switzerland receive treatment, which is which is massive numbers. If you look at North America, it's 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 crazy. Where right? I believe the numbers are like fifteen or ten percent. So I mean, it's it's clear. It's clear. Evidence-based policy making.
1: Mm. Is it though? What I'm thinking of it is in terms of safe injection. Is it, you know, if purely from a utilitarian standpoint, you could you could definitely justify it, saying, okay, look, it obviously reduces the harm that they the potential harms, potential, um, you know, um, sickness they can get through it. But in terms of like, is it actually good for the person to have these injection sites? You know, for the one who's who's actually addicted, would it be similar to? I'm trying to think of an example. If I had a problem with cutting myself, okay. and I would cut myself, you know, with anything I could find in the garbage, blah, blah, blah. And and then, you know, and then the government, you know, decided to open a safe cutting place and then where they give you, you know, very clean blades to cut yourselves with. In that analogy, is it similar to that where it's, it's good as a general whole? You know, for the society, because these people, because the people who are addicted to drugs, we want them not to be addicted to drugs. We think that it's, you know, they shouldn't be addicted to drugs. But hope, having a safe injection site is it from a from a standpoint of from for the good of them? Is it actually good for them? Like, do they do they receive any sort of benefit?
0: Well, I mean, I mean, the evidence, um, and we have multiple examples. Like I said, Switzerland, where heroin rates drop. Right. I mean, heroin rates collapsed by, by, by massive numbers. Overdose rates collapsed. I mean, 50% half of there's because of these um, centers, there's now 50% less overdoses, right? So naturally it's better for the person. This is a place where addicts can go and um, use their, use their drugs safely, but also then receive help. Right. I mean, uh, so it's not like,
1: so it's not like they're there, they get their drugs and then they can just, they're like, okay, you got your drugs. You can now, get out but they're trying to help them through
0: well yeah they can leave i mean at the end of the day a person's only going to stop using drugs if they want to right. right whether whether they have access to safe injection sites or not will not make a difference so yes a person will um can can be free to leave but the evidence shows and uh, portugal is is a great example of this where they've decriminalized all drugs there right mm-hmm. and uh in 2001 it was um it was um I forget his name i think is uh dr Jiao, dr Jiao guau and uh again portugal had similar situations in switzerland where they had the highest drug use of uh, of any country in europe in the 90s and progression just wasn't working so um um what what they were trying to look for solutions and and the one solution was that uh dr Zhao present, presented decriminalizing all drugs, and so w- what happens there is that if you're caught with drugs such as heroin cocaine, you name it you're kind of brought you're not you're not treated as a criminal, which is important you're treated as a sick person, which is number one, which i mean this is this is fundamental in my belief is that we as a society treat um, treat um, drug addicts as criminals, mm. while really they're sick people. Mm. And, uh, and, and this is what's fundamentally wrong with, with drug policy, is that, is that it's like going up to, say, someone... Like, drug addiction is a mental illness. It's, it's defined as such by, uh, by various uh, psychological inst- institutions and, uh, you know, I forget the specific term, but, yeah, it, it's, it's substance use disorder. There's a reason for that. And uh, it's, it's a mental illness. So it's akin to going up to someone with schizophrenia and telling them, hey, you better cut out that like psychosis stuff or else we're we'll sending you to jail, right? It's just, put it, put it in that way, it's absurd, right? But that's what's really happening because someone who's addicted to drugs, a real addict, has no, has no control over, the, over their drug use, right? So most addicts, um, if you inter- inter- interview them, they'll tell you that uh, it gets to a point where their whole lives are falling apart in front of them, like they're losing their jobs, losing their marriage, losing their kids. Um, they're dying, they're playing Russian roulette with their life on a daily basis, often going to bed in tears and just praying to God for help. But yet they wake up the next morning and do it all over again, right? Mm -hmm. That's, they have no control They're It's at this point, it's, uh, it's out of their hands in terms of aspects of control. So it's a mental illness, when you're doing something that is openly killing you, you want to stop, but can't stop, because you have no choice. It's, it's now kind of like, it's, it's clearly a mental illness at that point, right? So it's like saying, if you, you you don't want to hallucinate, but you do anyways, it's a an mental illness. So um, treating people as as uh, treating sick p- treating drug addicts as sick people is fundamental to changing how we view uh, addiction and drug policies. And this is what Portugal did back back to the point of Portugal. So they send drug addicts to to uh, to this tribunal and they say, hey, there's the door. Um, do you want to continue using drugs? And some of them, a lot of them, say, yeah, I do. And they'll say, okay, well, there's the door. We might see you next week, next month, whenever. But they say, but if you don't, we have access to, like, we can give you support. You know, we can help you, uh, provide you rehabilitation. We can provide you, um, you know, access to to uh, rehab. Um, you know, also stuff stuff like that. Maybe sober houses, uh, stuff that will help you kind of get back on your feet, get control of your drugs. You know, maybe some sort of group therapy and um, help you find work, etc. And you'd be shocked at the amount of percentage of people who get there and you're like, you know what? No, I don't want to do this anymore. If you're offering to help me, I'll take it. And again, Portugal is another perfect example of, of overdose rates went from um, something like one person. Uh, Portugal had 1% of the popular of their population addicted to hard drugs. 1% of the entire population, which I don't know, maybe to people who don't understand 1% of your entire population addicted to hard drugs, such as heroin and, and cocaine is Expensive. Is is a pandemic, and um, they had about like something like a thousand overdoses every single year. Overdose deaths. Mm. Now they have thirty. Wow. Drug rates have utterly collapsed in Portugal. Heroin rates collapsed. Um, HIV rates collapsed. Basically, they've gone from the worst country when it comes to addiction and drug issues in Europe to one of the best. And I mean, the that speaks for itself as. Something when I when I when I mean it's beneficial to society, it's also beneficial to the drug addict himself. It's beneficial in every aspect, in my opinion, because I mean, you're helping the person because you're reducing their risk, you're reducing their harm harm reduction. So it's less likely to overdose, less likely to get tainted drugs, less likely to get intravenous, uh, you know, like HIV and, and hepatitis or whatnot, and uh, more likely to seek. Be in a situation where you're treated as as a human being right you're not a you're not stigmatized you're treated as a sick person and you're and you're offered help so it's it's over the board it's it's uh, across the board it's um it's a beneficial policy in my opinion so harm reduction is is number one the problem in canada is we have like a patchwork
1: hmm. where
0: we have a situation where the drug laws are still backwards in how we treat criminal how we treat addicts as criminals while um, we have these safe injection sites, but only in Vancouver for the most part. Hmm. So it's like, uh, so you have this kind of like patchwork attempt, which is uh, doesn't really, you know, you're only going to get the results based on how much effort you put into something. So I'm sure it's helping, but given a lot of a lot of other aspects of it, I'm sure it's not as, you can't see it as helping as much in terms of, you know, visible. Uh, That being said, Vancouver has, if anyone knows is some of the worst addiction issues of any city in the entire country in, in the entire nor- northern
1: hemisphere how does how does portugal uh portugal uh pay for these rehabs when it's they're trying to question. help when they're trying to help um drug addicts
0: great question how much how much money do you think uh goes into uh goes into prohibition Goes into police, uh, police, uh, um, you know, police trying to bust users, trying to bust uh, you know the judges, the court system, prison system. The amount of money that goes into um, um, goes into that is, is just absurd. Like it's 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 massive, right? You see, you look at the United U.S. and they have five uh, percent of the population, twenty five percent of the of the of the inmates. Of the, of, of the world and you can see the potential financial impact that prohibition actually has in terms of even, and I, and I don't mean legalization, I mean decriminalization on its own has, uh, has massive, um, uh, massive financial costs. So what Portugal did is they, um, they now spend the 75% of the money that they used to spend on, uh, on enforcement mm-hmm. is now spent on rehabilitation twenty five percent is still spent on um, like you know going after actual like drug dealers so, I and mean, mm. drug, drug dealing should always still be illegal. And it should always be criminalized but uh, but the use of drugs because it's, it's kind of a a victimless crime to a certain degree, and b uh, not a choice anymore for most addicts, should not be treated as a crime. so mm. all the enforcement. The money that goes to lawyers, to judges, to the prison system, to enforcement is now being, for the most part, transferred to rehabilitation. And they have that and some left. So that's kind of like, it's not going to cost society, financially speaking, as much as people think. It's just kind of like a redistribution of it from, from enforcement to rehabilitation.
1: So in terms of like uh, decriminalization, how do they, so with, with Portugal, it's decriminalized, but there's, they, they will still find, are they still looking? for people who are using drugs and then trying to help them by, you know, bringing it into this tribunal. Correct. Okay. Yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, but it's not the same kind of enforcement that you would expect. Like they might stop someone on the street who is like using, using heroin. Right. So they can, they might stop them and say, okay, they give them a citation and say, you have to appear here in front of this tribunal. They might catch someone doing another crime potentially, but realize that they're, you know, they have addiction issues, and they will send them to this tribe tri- tribunal, something like that. So that's kind of, kind of how it works. Yeah, they're still, they're still going out, and um, and trying to stop like drug, blatant drug use in the streets and whatnot. But at the same time, they have access to the support system that, uh, that um, for the most part, has been shown to help addicts. So I mean, that's that's uh, that's how it works there. Like again, drug dealing and uh, trafficking is still still illegal and they still go after it as they should. But I mean, if you think of all the, all the amount of funds that go into just stopping drug use, then it's, it's, it's huge. It's
1: it's massive. I'm just, I'm curious to know how not many people are interested in drug addiction, the psychology behind drug addiction, drug addiction and also like the drug policies. For you, but for you, you're you're you know you you know your you know your drug addiction policies and the psychology behind it quite well because we had a we had a conversation previously. How did you get into it? Like what what what, what was it that brought you in and said, okay, you know what, I'm I'm just going to go all out and research this.
0: So um, I'm a, I'm am I'm a policy analyst by like that's 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 the field I work. For. I work for the for the government for uh, various departments at this point. Uh, and I'm a policy analyst, so um, that was my background. I did my master's in policy, uh, public international affairs, and policy analysis. And um, for a while, I was really—I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I really wanted to be a lawyer, and so I was really interested in like the justice system. And um, and and it started kind of with mandatory minimum sentences, and I was really like anti-mandatory minimum sentences. And I, you know that could be like a conversation for another day because I can I can talk ear off about that. Um, but among this. Uh, it kind of mandatory minimum sentences for drug crimes came up. And now oh, this, this is just one one reason, I'll explain you the other reason just a bit. Um, mandatory minimum sentences for drug crimes came up. And I just, uh, it kind of pushed me into understanding, you know, the the absurdity of criminalizing drug use in the first place. So that kind of, and I started doing a lot of research and realizing that the policy we have is not evident, evidence-based. Now I'm like, I'm a big nerd for evidence-based policy. Like mm. I'm against emotional-based policy. If you, even if something's a knee-jerk reaction, you should make policy based on the evidence you have, the scientific evidence. You can back it up just to say it works and not like emotional policy. So like mandatory minimum sentences is really emotional-based, right? It takes away the, takes away the judge's ability to, to decide on cases. Like, right? What's the point of a judge? But, uh, but this led me into, um, in, in, into drug policy at the same time, um, grew up in Toronto and I had, uh, I had, uh, over the years, I have a lot of friends there and over the years, good friends fell victim to, uh, to some drug addiction, whether they've fallen on hard times or, or, or whatnot. And, uh, I've known a few friends who have, who have passed away from it, um, I've had friends who, uh, really good friends who kind of got into that world, unfortunately, and then just had, uh, couldn't, couldn't get out of it. And uh, I have potential like um, um, substance abuse issues in the family um, from like my grandparents when it comes to potentially like, um, you know, alcohol related. So it's something that's always been really interesting for me. And then uh, mixed with my passion for like justice and policy, it was just kind of naturally, naturally something I wanted to, uh, wanted wanted to get into. And um, that's, that's, that's kind of it. And I saw, uh, I saw my friend struggle. And mm-hmm. um, uh, I just kind of opened my eyes to, to that whole world because I knew him as someone who didn't have issues with, uh, mm-hmm. with, with that. So like I've had friends who don't have issues with it. And then what they become after that, it was just fascinating for me, very, and tragic, and uh, I've also kind of saw them on their journey through uh, recovery, and uh, and that was very fascinating to me as well, mm-hmm. So I saw like what it takes for recovery versus versus what we have right now, and what, what will help a person versus what will make them worse. So.
1: Is, there, um, is there any sort of connection between, in terms of drug addiction, between um, joblessness and drug addiction, and I'm thinking of specifically the American Rust Belt. Where there's, you know, there's like heavy drug ab- drug addiction, and it's it's well known that you know most of most of these small towns that used to have factories, they no longer have factories, and so it, you know, in, in terms of Canada specifically, is is that connection still there? Is it just a, or is it just something that kind of happens to someone? You know, you're like, oh, you know what? Let me just go. I don't know. Let me go try. Heroin once, and then oh, this you know, I want to get that same high, or is it just so you know, you, you're trying to look for an escape and then you get there?
0: That's a, that's a fascinating question, that's a really important question, and uh, there's a, it's a complex answer. It's a complex answer now. What I believe and what I've studied, and I study Gabor Mate, who I mean, I recommend anyone go into uh, and research Gabor Mate, probably the leading addiction expert in the world, in my opinion, and he works in Vancouver, mm. uh, doctor. Um, he was like, a, I forgot what the term is, a doctor who would uh, help women give birth, um, that eventually became an addiction. He's a psychologist, doctor, and became an addiction specialist over, over time. Now, this is a fundamentally hard question to answer, but my view, and the view of most, uh, most people who study addiction at this point, is that addiction itself is... It's not about the drug. It's about the person. So we have an idea. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll put put, put it this way. So like, um, you use heroin regularly for a short amount of time, your body and mind start craving the drug ferociously, because uh, there are chemical hooks in the drug. So you have to do it again. You You get withdrawals if you don't. And that's what addiction is, right? No, it's not exactly that. And everything we know about this process is actually really wrong. And I'll give you, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, Diamorphine, which is something that you get in hospitals. Uh It is essentially heroin, but stronger and cleaner. And like, if your grandma breaks her hip, she will be given it intravenously and potentially for weeks in pill form after. Hmm. And in fact, countless people around the world, um, when they get various injuries, go into operations, you name it, get this pharmaceutical heroin for injuries. And uh, logic states that these people would become addicts, right? Because you're not because you have to take this for for a short amount of time. Like it's not like you take you don't
1: take, take these, it once. Let's say, you don't just take it once. You, you take it multiple times.
0: Well, yeah. Let's say you had a surgery, right? Let's say let's say you had like a, you're God forbid, and someone was in a car accident or something, right? You, you you need you might need to take pain medication for a while and this pain medication was essentially heroin so it's like uh why are not doesn't that mean everyone who goes in and has these surgeries everyone who comes out why isn't granny uh, a junkie is basically what i'm saying right like why granny breaks her hip given given a uh, hydromorphone and diromorphine why is not she become a junkie and like, like I said, logic states that people should become junkies, but they don't. And basically thorough study have done this because people who go into hospital are studied. And so why is this not the case? Mm. Of course, some people do become dependent, but most don't. Why is that? Why is, why is, what is the difference between the person who goes out on the weekends and has the occasional drink and then the person who goes out, has a drink, and then can't stop for three days? Mm right? Is it, is it the alcohol? Because there's clearly an issue here because it's not, and, and my view is it's, it's really the person, right? It's the person who, who, uh, who has a problem, who is predisposed to addiction for various reasons, not the drug. And we, the way we're taught in society is drugs are bad mm-hmm. and that if you use drugs, you're going to get addicted. This is not true. This is, this is fundamentally incorrect. Um, you could get addicted. A lot of people do get addicted, but it's not for the reasons people think. There's not an automatic connection. And uh, this brings me to like an experiment a um, uh, Canadian uh, psychologist did. His name is Bruce Alexander. And I think it's the it 70s. I don't actually re- recall which decade, but he did, uh, he did uh, this thing called the rat experiment, rat park. I don't know if you've, uh, you, you've read up on this, but so it's, uh, he basically uh, put rats in a cage And um, gave them two pieces of, they had two like water dispensers. And uh, one was filled with heroin and and cocaine or something like that. And one was regular. And so he watched as these these rats would just um, continually, habitually go back to the heroin water. Until they died. And uh, compulsively go back to the heroin water. And he wondered why that was. And this shows that, you know, drugs are very addictive. But then he said, well, how about I take these rats out of a cage? And he created what he called like rat park, where um, massive tunnels, all the rat sex and rat booty these these guys can get. <laughs> I mean, the best food, everything a rat could ever want to uh, to have a happy life. And then he put the water there.
1: Same water, the heroin water.
0: Same water, heroin water, regular water. Then he found out that it was shocking, but the rats almost never went to the heroin water.
1: Did they try it?
0: Some of them did. Some of them never got dependent. Some of them never got, never overdosed. Never, none ever died. Most just didn't even go for it. Most might've gone Mm -hmm. for it once and never again.
1: So there's there's this idea. So then it kind of breaks this, the mentality that with drug addiction, perhaps what they need is a strong community.
0: It's the environment. Maybe, maybe it's the environment and the person, mm. and not the drug, right? Which is, uh, which is where like the idea of like uh, of harm reduction comes into, right? But and I mean, this can be extended to a human example, mm. and um, this usually goes hand in hand. This example goes hand in hand with the Rat Park, is that a lot of people were. We're saying, well, you know, rats are rats and they're not humans, mm-hmm. right? Like rats might have not, you know, rats might have once they got into this rat park, basically never touched the the heroin water, but humans, but who knows how this would get transferred to humans. And we have an experiment for that as well. And that's called Vietnam War. And in Vietnam, it was a very like static warfare. Like, static means like lack of change. So unlike World War II, which is you know blitzkrieg always on the run for the most part like world war one was more of a static warfare trench warfare static warfare is very depressing it's psychologically hard on people in terms of me vietnam you're on like patrols in a horrific jungle waiting for a night attack you're on base sitting there down and waiting for potential night attacks forced to kill or die at any moment it's dismal one could say you're caged right mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh the statistics show that about 20% of the U.S. Army became heroin addicts as like, a way to, to, to deal with, with this kind of war.
1: While they were actively in...
0: While yeah. they were actively on duty. About 20%. Given the fact that almost, I think, 2 million point seven, 2.7 million um, American soldiers served, you're looking at pretty big numbers there. You're looking at hundreds of thousands of people. So uh, what does that mean? Like, So when these people came home, there should have been a massive, excuse me, massive, uh, heroin pandemic. Right? When you, almost 3 million people, 20 of which are heroin in, in young adult age, I should point out, come home and they're heroin addicts. Mm. So, I mean, that should have been like a massive pandemic, but, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't. Most of them didn't need rehab. Most of them didn't even go through withdrawal. Uh, most of them, 95% of them just stopped.
1: It just stopped when they came back?
0: Just stopped. This is like, you can look into this. This is documented. Um, so it turns out not being in Vietnam where, uh, where you're, you know, you know, basically hell in a sense for a lot of these 19 year old soldiers going back to your nice home with your friends and your dog and your wife and your strong support system and strong social connections mm. is what matters. So, gabor mate um gabor mate puts it puts it really well it's like sobriety is not um addiction the opposite of addiction is not sobriety the opposite of addiction is connection hmm. and this is what is uh and what is um uh, fundamental because like i said it's not about the drug it's about the environment it's about your cage and humans uh, so we have to kind of start different, thinking differently about addiction in general, because, uh, you know, a happy, healthy life equals bonding with the people around us. So humans need bonding. We are programmed to make bonds and connect. It's what's like fundamental to our evolution. It's, it's, it's ingrained in us, right? So, um, but when we can't have, say, like a happy, happy life with healthy bonds because of, Things like mental illness, depression, uh, childhood trauma, um, our environment—people will seek bonds elsewhere. So you'll seek bonds um, through addiction, through you'll you'll seek relief in drugs, hmm. and and this is what like again I'll, I'll quote Gabor Mate a lot because he's uh, he's fundamental in this understanding, and that uh, and he explains it very well about this idea of bonds and connection. And he goes no uh, no addict. No, nobody is an addict because they're happy, right? Mm,
2: uh, mm. At
0: the end of the day, no matter what anyone tells you, people don't use drugs because they have a happy and fulfilling life. People, well, you know what? People might use drugs, experiment, but no one is an addict to drugs if they are, have a happy and fulfilling life. And he explains, and and uh, and he explains as well. He goes, not all people with mental illness or childhood trauma become addicts. But something like, and this is according to his statistics, and he works with, with, with the worst addicts, 95% of addicts mm-hmm. have mental illness, probably in many ways due to childhood trauma. Mm. That's,
1: so that's a huge number.
0: Yeah, 95%. That's 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 his number. So 95%. And um, that basically goes down to this, and, and he and his belief is that addiction uh and and in fact a lot of mental illness goes back to childhood trauma and i mean this is we're just scratching the surface of this uh of this at the moment when it like we're realizing though in in psychology and psychiatry in general a lot of issues come back to childhood trauma because um you know childhood trauma affects how your brain develops and this is what kind of what leads to in many ways leads to mental illness of course People can be predisposed with mental illness and they can get it from, from birth as well. But for the most part, drug addicts, almost, almost universally, have experienced childhood trauma, have some sort of mental illness, or both. And it's almost universal. I mean, it's, it's almost universal. And this is what's fascinating. Because people with, uh, with addiction, people with, with childhood trauma or mental illness, are dealing with, with some messed up stuff often, right? Their, their brain have, has developed incorrectly. They have depression. They're looking for, um, for relief, right? Mm-hmm. You talk to addicts and addicts will tell you almost universally the same thing. They will say, um, they will say they have, a they have a hole, right? They have to, they have a void, right? And I, uh, I ended up getting a certificate in harm reduction, um, Back in back in my undergrad, in order to because I was so fascinated with uh, this topic, I took a course and um, gave me a certificate in harm reduction. So I did a lot of interviews with with with, with like serious serious addicts, like addicts on the street, and they will almost universally, almost universally, say the same thing, which is that they have a void, which mm-hmm. is they have something missing. A lot of people, this is also something where people with depression talk about. You know, it's like try to explain depression; it's really hard. And for people who don't have it, it's almost like, it's almost like impossible to explain, right? Mm. I mean, it's it's you just the closest thing is is this hole people have inside them, and they need to fill it with something. And so I I often say that people are addicts before they've ever touched a drug. Mm. Right? so, um, I mean, relief can come from various forms: smartphones, uh, pornography, eating, video games. Whatever provides that dopamine hit that mm. makes life worth living, that, that relieves you from the dismal pain that you're experiencing, that the dismal, you know, the situation you're in, the, the, the pain you're going through, the, um, what, what, what leads a lot of people to suicide, that hole, right? Mm. So whatever you need to fill that hole. And um, I think drugs basically just become something that fills it very well. And that's kind, kind of the issue right it's it's uh
1: it's quick you get that dopamine hit quite quick you know once well you
0: yeah it. because drugs hijack your reward mechanism the reward mechanism in your brain right uh dopamine is what is um is what is uh fundamental in human evolution like i mentioned right it's it's what's it's what's cause it's it's the it's the reward mechanism it's what's gives us motivation to get out of bed in the morning. It's what gives us motivation to uh, overachieve, to, for, to eat, sex. Everything is related to your reward system in your brain. It's related to dopamine. So when a drug hijacks that aspect of your brain, it makes, um, it makes drug addiction, it makes getting relief from the drug, using the drug, getting that dopamine hit, more important it makes it makes it kind of like almost like um fight or flight response right it make it basically makes you need it in order to to it gives you it's the only way you get motivation it's what you need to survive uh an interesting side story is that crack cocaine Mm -hmm. the uh the street term in many ways for crack cocaine is food right and so just to give you an idea that the like the drug is referred to as food on the street, Mm. meaning it's like, I mean, it's taken the place, the the vocabulary has taken the place of an actual something you need to survive. So like that's how drugs work. Right. So, I mean, it's, and, and that's why someone who's addicted no longer like seriously addicted, no longer has control. That's why they go, they, they, you know, they want to stop. They need to stop but they can't stop mm. and even at the cost of losing their lives at the cost of like losing their lives for sure. I mean, at the cost of losing their families, everything. Right. So and this is why, um, why the criminalization of it is just insane
2: mm.
0: is that it's like, like I said, um, the demand for drugs is inelastic. So even if you try to reduce the supply, the demand for drugs does not change. You're just, just throwing it, throwing the market under, underground. You're just, uh, creating a more, um, you're giving you're giving the criminal organizations uh, more profit essentially, right?
1: With the with the criminalization, I mean, if what Gabor, Gabor Mate is saying, if you take, if you take a an addict and then you you know you turn them into a criminal, and you put them in prison, you're kind of, you're separating their social bond them from their social structure. So oh, f-
0: you nailed it! You nailed it! You nailed it! You're isolating them. Yeah, it's like it's like trying to put out a fire with gasoline.
2: Mm.
0: Right? Because these people are sick. They need social connection. They need uh they need um social healthy social bonds. Uh and what you're doing, you're you're criminalizing them, so you're stigmatizing them. You're sending them to jail where you're basically isolating them. You're giving them a criminal record so that it will be difficult for them to get a job and actually, you know, creates healthy social bonds afterwards and you're essentially pushing them like it's the perfect recipe to push someone back into drugs mm. and then you punish them and shame them for not being able to uh, get better it's a backwards policy it's literally what not to do to help someone re- recover from uh, ad- addiction
1: and it's, is, is the canadian uh, policies on dr- a policy on drug like what's the what what's the, uh, what, what, what's the uh... What's the law on drugs
0: there? Well, I mean, it's better than it was under, under Stephen Harper because Stephen Harper, under the the previous conservative government, they had they had a, just a complete um, emotions based policy approach. So it's like drugs are bad. Uh, if you're drugs, you're a bad person, which we know is not the case. You're a sick person. Um, and if you're and if you're caught with drugs, you go to jail. And in fact, there were mandatory minimum sentences for uh, drug use under, How long under were Stephen they? Harper. Oh, man, I would have to look into that. It's been, it's been a, I did, I, I wrote my math, like I did my master's partly on this, actually. Um, I, I mean, one, um, one interesting statistic that, that kind of, um, I, 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 in particular, remember, because yeah. it was so ridiculous, is that someone who had something like around 300 marijuana plants at the time okay. would get a higher prison sentence <laughs> than someone uh convicted of uh of uh of pedophilia
1: what that is yes, absolutely ridiculous
0: fact like like this is a fact i remember i remember in my master's i remember reading this and being like this is just this is just insane oh my this goodness. is just insane yeah so i mean it's not as bad as i mean i think a lot of um i'd have to look into mand- mandatory minimums because i haven't in, in a little bit but I think a lot has changed since, since the, uh, in terms of the justice system and since, uh, since the conservatives, uh, Stephen Harper's conservatives, I should point out. Um, that being said, it's still illegal, right? I mean, m- marijuana is, is, is illegal as, frankly, it makes sense for it to be. I mean, again, we, we've seen so much prohibition, and marijuana is a perfect example. As Marijuana rates have never gone down. They've only gone up. The only thing that's happened is you've criminalized people. Mm-hmm. You've uh you've ruined their you've given them criminal records for something that can't kill you, number mm-hmm. one, uh, is very victimless. I mean, it's safer than alcohol. Uh I mean yes. that's probably that's that's, that's
1: <laughs> I, I still don't understand how alcohol is legal. I mean, I, I'm 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 fine that it's legal, but the fact that it's it it damages people, it damages families, and we're nonchalantly be like, Oh, you know what? It's here. Anyone can buy it. I mean, obviously, you have to be 18 or 19 plus. But the fact that it, that's legal and then marijuana, I mean, wasn't legal.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, usually what people say, oh, well it's, a, well, it's a part of our culture, right? I mean, yeah. alcohol is a part of our culture. And it's, uh, it's really just a crazy double standard and, uh, and uh, hypocrisy, really. I mean, like some people, um, some, some people quote that uh, alcohol is actually one of the most dangerous drugs. I mean, uh, I read some stats it, that it was. Yeah, so I mean, statistically speaking, you can die from alcohol withdrawal, right? There's a lot of serious drugs you generally will not die from. But I mean, uh, I, I mean, like meth and cocaine, you're not going to die from withdrawals. Um, they're mostly mental. Um, benzodiazepines, right? Things that are prescribed on a daily basis for anxiety and whatnot. So like Valium and uh, Lorazepam, and you name it. Like, you can die from those withdrawals. Mm. That's one of the worst withdrawals you can, uh, you can go through. And alcohol, you can die from withdrawals. Alcohol, you know, it's related to violence. It's related to um, drunken driving deaths. Mm. Like, I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's a crazy double standard. So you have this policy that just does not make any sense. And so, you, in my opinion, you either say, listen, all drugs are illegal, everything. Because I mean, even coffee is a drug to a certain degree. 100%. So, uh, or if you, or, or if you don't want this double standard, you should have an evidence based policy. And Mm. I mean, uh, and that's decriminalization. There's nothing, there's nothing, uh, and, and, and in my opinion, they see it with marijuana. Um, alcohol is legal, cigarettes are legal, but for some reason you have situations like, oh, well, well, heroin and cocaine and like mushrooms or whatever, you can't. That's illegal, right? There's literally no logical. Um, there's 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 no logic there, right? I mean, cigarettes kill. I think more people than heroin does. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, cocaine deaths are actually like they're horrible for you. It's terrible for your cardiovascular system. Mm-hmm. Will ruin your life. But I mean, cocaine deaths in terms of overdose are not huge. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I mean, they're most mostly related to car cardiovascular deaths. Yeah. So.
1: Would legalization destroy the um, the drug world in terms of drug uh, drug sellers and all these terrible terrible oh. drugs that they're selling?
0: Oh my god! I mean, decriminalization I think is is a great solution. Um, it's worked in Portugal. We mm-hmm. have like a case study of like it being essentially nothing but success. You rarely, you rarely get a policy. And uh, you rarely get a policy where it's like almost universally successful. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, you, you usually say, Oh, well, we have mostly benefits, but then we have some costs here, but it's cost benefit analysis. It's mostly, I mean, decriminalization of all drugs for Portugal has been nothing but like a savior. for them.
1: Mm. And, they allowed to buy drugs le- um, legally?
0: No. No, oh, okay. drug, like that would be, that would be uh, legalization.
1: So like that really Selling
0: the, the, the trafficking of drugs is, is still illegal. It's, okay. Uh, yeah, but, uh, and I mean.
1: <sighs> Isn't that the case here with uh, mushrooms, with psilocybin? You can't no, buy it, but so. you can own it. Well, you can grow don't it. I don't believe so. No? I believe you
0: can, I believe, uh, I believe it's actually really, really stupid if I'm not mistaken, you can, you can get the, you can have the mushroom spores. Yes. Yes. The moment you, you put them on, I don't know what is, what is it like rice or whatever you need to manure or whatever they use, mushrooms use, use uh, to grow with it. Whenever you put them on that and put them in a dark place and they grow, then it's, uh, then it's automatically like whatever pops out of there is illegal. Oh, (laughs)
1: Why, 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 can, why can you own spores then? What's the point of oh, owning spores? Your,
0: your guess is as good as mine, man. I mean, <laughs> I have no idea. I have no like I'm pretty sure they sell them in the spores. The, you need They sell them in stores. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's completely illogical. And then you have like drugs like uh, salvia. I don't know if you've heard. That's yeah. been, I mean, that people equate to as strong as like DMT, but in a very bad way.
1: Can you explain that, what salvia is for people who don't know?
0: Okay well um I'm not I mean I don't know uh like the specifics of like the various chemical specifics of it but I mean it's it's a super strong hallucinogen and it's uh like DMT it's it will it's it's um it's not enjoyable from from what I read it's it's uh it's really it's really powerful and um it it's like it equates to a complete mystical experience you get blasted off into space but not in a good way a lot of people call say that with DMT you're just uh you just blast it off into like a shamanic world or whatever, but uh, uh, salvia is not very enjoyable for me from from yeah. everything I read about it. And you can buy it at your corner store, like in, a, in I your didn't local know that shop. you can. I believe so. I know yeah. you. I'm I'm pretty sure you could for a long time. I don't know. Maybe the laws have changed. I'm not sure, but I mean, for the for for a long time, you can buy salvia extract in your local head shop. So on I mean, like what's Where's the logic with that? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's. uh it's kind of it's 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 absurd.
1: So is Portugal is Portugal a rare case? Has have there been other European countries that have followed suit, or is, is Portugal still the only one that has decriminalized all drugs and nobody else is following suit?
0: I think Portugal is the only one. From my, I, I would have to like I, I should have done a little bit more homework, but but I should know this. But I think Portugal is you know, is is uh, is uh, the only European country that's has fully de- fully de- decriminalized drugs. And I mean, you talked about like. Uh, the difference between you, you mentioned—I I didn't mean to go on a segue—but you mentioned about whether it would uh, it would um, reduce the uh, the underground market for yeah, it, yeah. and like ending prohibition has been another failure. So um, it would 100% eliminate um, everything that the, like drug dealers, or, um, organized crime related to drugs, everything would just basically. I always tell, tell people this, if you, if um, if you, uh, if, if the United States one morning decided to legalize all drugs mm-hmm. and within like, let's say fast forward, you have, uh, which would be the safest way to do it. You'd legalize all drugs and then you have like, like pharmacies that, that you can go and buy them. And on the, and on the, on the label, they would like give you the realistic, um, like, you know, heroin, highly addictive could kill you you know i mean like will likely lead to overdose and death um like actual proper information on there and um and give you like some like a number for for rehab or whatnot on on those and you can go buy it in a store i don't think drug rates would change like how many people do you know who if tomorrow canada legalized heroin Mm -hmm. would be like I'm I've been ladies. waiting to do this. Yeah, I the only thing has been stopping me is the law. You know, like, I mean, It's just like, I don't know many people who would do that. I, mean, yeah. I think if you're, if you're using heroin, you're like, like we talked before, you wait, your brain works. It's you're not thinking of consequences, whether the laws, whatever the laws are, that doesn't, you know, don't matter to you. It's just how it works. So no, I don't think rates would change. And this has been proven and at the very least, partly proven with marijuana rates in Canada and places where they've, um, legalized marijuana and in general in terms of drugs all over the place in, uh, in Portugal in fact drug rates went down for decriminalization there so go figure um, but what it would do it would completely take all the power away from organized crime in terms of the profits they make from, mm. from, from drug addiction so what I say is if America woke up one morning and started producing all drugs uh, um, in pharmacies you would single handedly save the country of Mexico in one false loop and a lot of Latin American countries, for that matter. Yeah. Because uh, Mexico is essentially a failed state, in many ways. Maybe failed state is is a harsh word, but um, mm. but in certain in certain senses, Mexico is close to a failed state because of um, <laughs> because of their proximity to the United States and because of the U.S.'s taste for drugs. Mm. It's it's another failed state. So like, uh, sorry, maybe it's not. I shouldn't say that song, right. Nice. But, uh, but it's it's really bad. I mean, profits for the drug market in the U.S. alone per year is fit is thirty billion dollars in the U.S. alone.
1: Did you it's say a, profit?
0: It's a thirty billion dollar industry in the U.S. alone, yearly dollar industry. And how successful uh, do you think uh, um, how successful do you think the the DEA has been in stopping um, (laughs) this? So their rates of their efficient the efficient DEA's rates of success is one percent of all drugs that come into the country and are within the country. I mean, that's a horrible just It's not like I mean one percent. I that that is they admit to this because it's just that's just the reality and the and the crimes we associate with drugs yeah. interestingly enough, it's actually crimes due to prohibition, not drugs so like mm.
1: um not um, you mean not the usage of drugs but
0: yeah, like actual the crimes itself uh, associated with 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 um with drugs um crime gangs um uh, mm. cartels violence uh, um like prostitution related to drugs um all these crimes, violence, is actually because of prohibition. It's not because of drugs. Hmm. Um, um, Homicide, like some statistics show that, estimates show that homicide rates in the United States between 33 and 55% higher in the US due to the drug war.
1: Due to the drug war?
0: Yes. The, The reason that, like, so because drugs are illegal and because they're like, you know, people kill each other because of it, because of like, um, I don't know, gangs, gang violence, right? Like they uh, go shoot each other in the streets because of this is my corner, not your, like for example, like a small, small example, um, from 30 30 to 55%, uh, like homicide rates in the US, I'll put it this way, homicide rates in the US are 30 to 55% higher according to some estimates because drugs are illegal. Wow. So, I mean, who are you, uh, like, who are you really helping here by keeping it illegal? And um, I should point out, keeping drugs illegal actually, um, uh, how do I put this? It actually uh, leads to more potent drugs. It leads to um, better quality meth, better, for example, like meth is a great example for this. So... um, uh, in the 90s, when meth became a huge problem for uh, the US, uh, the US tried to stop its productivity by like, controlling and regulating la- the uh, large-scale sc- large sale of chemicals used at the industrial level that is needed for the production of meth. And um, this led to a lot of closure of some of these like, chemical-producing businesses and, 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 and companies and actually reduced a lot of like, large-scale uh, meth, like large meth production. But the consequence of that is that uh, thousands of uh, meth labs, like mom and pops, meth producers, popped up all over rural, rural, uh, rural, rural United States. And um, I mean, think Breaking Bad, right? I mean, think yeah. um, that kind of a, that kind of a level of um, uh, per production, like meth labs, like in your basement and stuff like that. And what these people did is they used unregulated chemicals. So like, um, ephedrine is often what is used to in the production of, uh, of meth and ephedrine is something you find in like, say diet pills or, uh, exercise pills and stuff like that. Um, uh, um, like you find it in cold medication actually. Um, so, uh, so they just went and just would start buying mass amounts of like cold medication and, uh, and diet pills and to extract this ephedrine which is necessary to, uh, to create meth. And then they did it in these moms and pops uh, like all over the states instead of big massive meth labs. Now you could, they were all over rural America. So I mean, so what did the U.S. try to do then? So the U.S., that, what what U.S. Yes, ended up doing is uh, um, trying to control these chemicals. So now it's like it became really uh, hard to get these chemicals.
2: Mm.
0: So they tried to regulate them. And, it was successful, so I mean, it made it, made it very hard for, for people all over rural U.S. to, to uh, get these chemicals, and as a result, a lot of meth labs shut down. Should point out, these meth labs are also related to a lot of deaths from like explosions and stuff like that. It's super dangerous, like cooking this stuff up. Um, so that must have, uh, uh, that must have um, fixed the meth problem in the U.S., right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well,
0: not even a little bit, because what ended up happening is that the supply stayed exactly the same, because experience meth cartel came in.
1: Oh, wow. For so meth. now
0: it's like you can't, there's no industrial level meth production in the States. There's no um, now rural small time scale meth production in the States. I told you demand for drugs is inelastic for all the reasons we've already discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the demand will be full, will be filled. So like put another way is like drug use, and. Uh, pride um, drugs are not price sensitive or cost sensitive.
2: Mm.
0: So reducing supply increases, like increasing punishment does not reduce drug use rates or the demand for it. Um, so the cartel stepped in and it led to, uh, and the cartel are super experienced drug, uh, you know, really whatever drug production they do, they're very, they know what they're doing. So it led to better quality meth, uh, more of it, industrial size production, Meth um, use was rampant on the borders with Mexico in the U.S. and now in parts of, like I think Fresno, California, they don't even you, you get citations for, for there's so many people who are using it. You're now just like the police can and deal with it, so they give you citations for uh, for uh, possession there. At that mm. point, they don't even charge you. And this is actually called the uh, the uh, balloon effect. Okay. So it's like think of it as like whack a mole. Right. And so higher prices, just in, so reducing so supply. Uh, Leads to higher prices, which just uh, encourages more production, Mm -hmm. um, meaning more recruitment for drug dealers, more organized crime, generally more violence, if you look at Mexico, and the end user supply in the medium and long term Mm -hmm. is never really uh, reduced. It's called the balloon effect. So like whether, so you can't, so the more you try to, more you try, the more enforcement you put into trying to reduce the supply, arrest people, um, uh, you know, uh, crime. I mean, um, pun- crime punishment, whatever. It's all just leads to more production, more meth, more meth, more drugs, etc. Which is, it's, it's, it's a really interesting phenomenon. And um, I mean, when it's a thirty billion dollar industry, I mean, are you really support Are you really surprised mm-hmm. that that's the case? So I mean, that's uh, so that's what the balloon effect is, and that's why the DAA has like a one percent success rate of uh, stopping trucks
1: what about what about the uh what about can, uh, canadian do we have cartels in canada besides the um, maple syrup cartel
0: i mean i've i've i've, I've heard we have we have yeah i mean i think there's uh there's a an interesting I think was like things like a vice documentary about that i wanted to look into that i i heard there was a like a vice like a um like a maple syrup cartel what a cartel by definition is right it's mm-hmm. like basically if like The producers, the you know suppliers of something, come together, and uh, and agree on a on like let's say like a monopoly is uh, is is like one unit, one person. Let's I'll give you an example. Like I have a monopoly on like apples. I'm the only one who can sell apples, Mm -hmm. and um, as a result, I can you know I have I have uh, there's no competition for me, so I can I can basically set the the price at whatever I want. I'm I'm the only one who, who produces it um there's less innovation because of that like my product if i'm the only one who has, who has apples whether it's super high quality apples or not very quality apples doesn't really matter as much and what a cartel is is when let's say you have it was me and like five other friends who are the only people who uh who, who supply apples we come together and so instead of competing with each other instead of saying uh uh well i will sell you know like igor sells apples at ten dollars uh a dozen i i can i can do better than that right so i'm gonna sell it at eight and i'm like oh shit i i i need to lower my prices prices down this is how kind of like capitalism works right this is in a way the invisible hand of the market and um cartels just kind of come come together um and say listen we will just uh we won't compete with each other Mm -hmm. let's just keep prices high um we're the only ones who can who can um, supply this product we'll keep prices high and we will uh And we'll all benefit from it. Like we kind of have like our telecom industry is kind of a cartel here. That's why we have, we pay crazy amounts for our our cell phone bills and whatnot. Like if you look at other countries, it's like super tiny.
1: Is the, um, in terms of decriminalization, why would we stop at decriminalization? Why not just legalize it? Like what difference would it make?
0: I mean, the only reason you should legalize it. I mean, like, Listen, between about 200,000 people were killed in Mexico because of drug-related crimes in six years. Between and 2010 and 2016, about 200 people were murdered related to cartel violence. The cartel only exists. The only reason they exist is to supply drugs.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's more than Iraq and Afghanistan in that period, right? Decriminalization won't stop that because you will. They will. You'll still need people to supply these drugs, and if it's illegal, people it's still in the in the hands of the black market. The cartel is so powerful in Mexico. I keep referring to it because it's it's a tragedy of, of the situation. Uh, is that they have thirty billion dollar industry. They have so much money. They pay off everybody. They pay off the police. They pay off the judges. They pay off um, the the army. They pay off everyone. Like people are scared to go to the police. Um, Let's say a a family member disappeared. They're scared to go to the police because um, they don't know if the police, like at night, these police take off their uniforms and then they go kill people. That's how it is. Like that's really, I'll tell you really, this story would just blew my mind. I mean, this is a little bit of a segue. It will give you the reason why things should be legalized. This story blew my mind. And uh, I didn't know about this until recently, but, you know, you have all sorts of cartels and you have like the Sinaloa cartel. And uh, you know, at one point in Colombia you had the Cali cartel. But I mean, in Mexico, um, prohibition led to the United States in order to curb uh, drugs smuggling into the US. They had to, they had to attack the uh, cartel. But Mexico is Mexico, the US is US. They don't have jurisdiction. But they wanted to help the Mexican government in the battle against, uh, against the cartels. But because of corruption, because of everything I've just discussed, they figured out a solution. I forget if this is, I'm pretty sure it's the FBI, but it might've been the CIA. They thought, okay, well, we'll take a Amer- we'll we'll take Mexican soldiers and we'll create this like super special forces team that will go and will hunt down cartel,
2: hmm.
0: like special forces. They yeah. trained them in US special forces, strategy, t- tactics, you name it. I mean, Completely developed a special badass special forces team. Sent them back to Mexico to to fight the cartels. This team of people became Los Zetas, the most brutal, dangerous, and violent drug cartel in Mexico. Because they got there and were like, "Hey, we're 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 super like we're we're special forces." I mean. Do we want to get paid like thirty or forty grand? Or we want to be like we we got this, we got, this. and then they just took over. Oh. They said these are our areas. If you want to, they hired they hired uh, kids and whatnot, train them in the special forces techniques. Read articles about this. It's a, they say the special forces training stays with you, and they became the Los Zetas cartel. And I mean, um, if you go, if anyone's interested in uh, just a little plug, uh, the it. show there's a recent show called Zero Zero Zero.
1: Is this on Netflix or it's Amazon It's On Amazon. Prime? Amazon. Amazon Prime really okay.
0: flew under the radar. Absolutely fantastic show. What's it Definitely again? Like
1: pardon me? What's it called again?
0: Zero zero zero. And it talks a lot about. Uh, I really recommend it. It's fantastic. It talks. Uh, follows like um, follows a co- massive cocaine shipment from from uh, the demand in Italy by the mafia. So it follows like mafia families in Italy to the supply from Mexico. And it follows actually. Uh, the reason I bring it up is because. It's an example of a, of a Mexican special forces team that just decided to, to, to be a cartel. And that's kind of what, what this is, uh, what the movie, what the, the show is about. It's fantastic, but it, it gives you a really uh, um, you know, a dramatized version of that. It's, uh, if you want to, to, to see it in real life, it's brutal. I mean, the cartel take, like sc- buses of school children disappear. I mean, like if there's any reason to stop, to legalize drugs is that.
1: How? How how difficult or easy or like what, what would the process be in, in Canada if you, in terms of creating a policy, uh, to de- decriminalize this or even legalize this? Like, what would it look like? What's the process?
0: I mean, look look at the process. We have. I think I think um, the example of, of, of marijuana legal, uh, legalization has been has been a perfect one, right? I mean, you uh, what I would do is you have the government to be the ones who sell it. Right? So, I mean, the stores in, in um, I believe, Ontario, they, they, they get from the um, Ontario Cannabis Store, the OAC, yeah. I don't know what it's called, I forget yeah. what it's called. Um, and they supply basically to, um, to all, all the, the dispensaries, essentially, right? So, you have a minimum age. Um, I, I think a lot of teenagers will, will tell you it's harder for them to get alcohol than mm-hmm. it is certain drugs. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't think, so, I mean, you, you put an age... Restriction, you have a situation kind of like with uh, with uh, with mar- with marijuana, albeit I would say I mean this is just top of my head. I would say maybe harder drugs. It would be more of like more more pharmaceutical based uh, like dispensing. So
2: mm-hmm.
0: I mean I'd say take it very seriously. Super like uh, restricted in terms of age, um, government supply, yeah, I think I think marijuana is a great example, but maybe a little bit more serious in terms of, uh, um, you know, the dispensing aspect of it.
1: And if we're talking about evidence-based policies, is the best way to go about this instead of decriminalizing? Let's just say, you know, over the course of uh, two years, let's just say, is it better to have isolated areas where it's decriminalized, where you know people can do research? I'm thinking what I'm thinking of is um. I forget what the place. I forget what Ivy League is, but they have they now have a center for psychedelics. I think it's a Center for that psychedelics. Either it's in Yale or Harvard. It's one of them, and, and you know they're studying the effects, the positive benefits of psychedelics on PTSD, um, depression, and in that way they can you know slowly influence the rest of the country, as opposed to you know let's decriminalize the whole thing and see what happens.
0: I mean would a pilot project be uh be helpful i mean at the it, it, fundamentally i don't think it matters i mean mm-hmm. will, it be, will it be will it be will it be safer i i mean i think the science is already out there to show that uh that prohibition doesn't work and that mm-hmm. like at the very least decriminalization does not it only there's only benefits it doesn't lead to increased use increased access like it's uh you know, reducing in violence. So I mean, maybe there's something to say about you know having some sort of pilot project to see of the effects. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're going to go research-based policy, it's best to, to to see benchmarks and see you know just in, to avoid maybe something happening that was unpredicted, some sort of mm-hmm. X factor. I mean, hey, it might be it might be a good idea, but I find like um, um, I find. Uh, um, Research is easier if something is decriminalized or legalized, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. the only reason people, I think, are now considering psilocybin as something to be decriminalized is due to the fact that there's been a lot of um, progress on the in, in exactly what you're talking about. These these are uh, these psychi- these psychiatry psychologists, these clinics who are testing it and showing positive results for, like you said, for PTSD, depression, addiction, actually as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a huge progress in, in regards to that. And this usually leads the way to uh, decriminalization and, and, and addiction. Like it's usually not the, it's usually, this is what actually um, pushes people to decriminalize and legalize something. Um, because it's been, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, uh, psilocybin was like for a long time in like, I think after you know, the hippie revolution, they were testing it a lot, but it kind of, because of its legal status, all the testing kind of fell off the radar for decades. And we saw this with marijuana as well, right? I mean, people just, uh, people were, uh, you, it's hard to test something that's illegal at the end of the day. It's hard to get licenses for testing things and, and clinical trials for things that are illegal. Right? That's, just, that's just the reality. Of it. So, I mean, um, legalization, and even I'm not super, like, even I have a knee-jerk reaction to it, right? I mean, I think everyone has a natural knee-jerk reaction that we suggest legalize drugs, mm. Um, I'm not comfortable with the idea. I'm not comfortable with the idea of, of, of someone going in and buying heroin or cocaine from a pharmacy. I'm not. Uh, but that's the problem, is that I'm not, for the very same reason I'm not comfortable, so is everyone else. And this is why policy doesn't change. And at the end of the day, you have to choose whether you're going to, whether you're going to dictate policy on the base of evidence and science, mm-hmm. or you're going to dictate policy on the base of emotions and knee-jerk reactions.
1: Mm-hmm. Gabor, I think Gabor Gabor Mate had said, "What did he say?" He said, um, "Addiction is not genetic, or so, something along the lines of addiction is not genetic." Or the interviewer was asking, "Is the, is addict?" That's what it was the interviewer was asking, "Is it is addiction genetic?" And he said, "No, it's not genetic. It's people. It, it depends on what your circumstance or your environment is, and you, and in that, if you are in a particular environment where you're, I think he said." If your father is an alcoholic then it's not your genes that determine that you become an alcoholic it's the environment that you're in that predisposes you towards the abuse of alcohol and that was very For interesting.
0: sure for sure and I think like I mean it's easy to um it's easy to say that like oh you know people become alcoholics because they say it's in my genes and I mean I'm, I'm not I'm not someone like I I'm not a doctor right so I mean I I'm not going to say whether that's true or not. I think there's evidence to say that there, there are genes related to addiction. And um, I mean, Gabor would know more than me, obviously. But, uh, but I think what he was trying to say is that, yeah, like, it's easy to say, oh, I'm an alcoholic because it's in my genes, right? Mm-hmm. But um, what about the consequences that it could be in your genes, but you might not become an alcoholic? What, what were the consequences growing up in, a, uh, in, a, in an abusive household? Right, what were the consequences of seeing your dad drunk every day, or, or um, experiencing childhood trauma? Right, I think hes, he's I think we was referring to the fact that, as much as addiction is—is, is, um, could be a genetic factor. I, I I think, the environment, is a bigger factor. I think mm-hmm. the potential for childhood trauma is bigger because you might not have addiction in your genetics but you would still become an addict because um, for for a variety of reasons, you, you were, you experienced childhood trauma and uh, you develop some sort of mental illness. And Hmm. like we discussed, you, you had a, you you were in pain, you had a void to fill and you were constantly seeking relief.
1: Is that why AAs are very successful in that they create this environment?
0: Well, yeah. And I did a lot of research on AA and NA and um, because um, it saved a lot of people's lives. And I mean, if you look at, a, and Gabor will tell you the same thing, is that is that the success rate for uh, recovering like addiction is is shockingly low. I mean, uh, about about five percent. And he even he even talks about this in like kind of like a like a discouraged manner because he goes like like if he says if you uh, judged my um, like my work based on uh, my results, mm-hmm. I would be another failure. Because um, rates of, of, of uh, rates of addiction recovery, and it's ju- it just goes to show how little we know about addiction and how it affects a, a brain even now. Mm-hmm. Is that is that rates of addiction recovery are are, are actually just five percent? That's tiny. That means if you're an addict, you have a five percent chance of recovering from that.
1: That's that's very small.
0: And likely a ninety-five percent. If you're a serious addict, there's like a ninety like a very high chance it might end in like jail institution or death. And you you hit it on the head with which is why like um, AA and its subsequent groups NA were so successful is because um, they uh, they um, they hit on this idea of 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 support and connection without I think without even necessarily knowing it right there was like think if I forget the guy who wrote NA uh, who wrote the the AA book but um, he it's a story about it's actually from the thirties and it's a story about a guy who no matter how many times he saw, uh, got therapy, saw a psychiatrist, got medication. He could not stop drinking no matter what. And his world was falling apart and like all basic psychiatrists them, they basically, they, uh, they, uh, they said, there's, there's no hope for this guy. Hmm. It's gone. I mean, there's no fixing him. Right. So he created, uh, he started doing therapy with other addicts, with other alcoholics. And it's the idea is that like one addict, one alcoholic helping another is, is unparalleled, right? That's, that's what he came down to. It's like the therapeutic value of, of addicts helping addicts or alcoholics helping alcoholics is, uh, is where the magic happens mm. and that he was able to, to get better. And um, AA and NA have like very high rates of uh, like, no, sorry. <laughs> they don't have very high rates. They have relatively high rates of, uh, of um, recovery because it's exactly that. I mean, it's, um, um, you're, you, you connect with people in the program, you, um, you exchange numbers, you, uh, and my friend, my friend had a lot of success with NA and, uh, it's just a super support system, right? That's basically what it would, what it is. It saved, it saved. I, 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 I think it's a wonderful program. It saved people's lives. It saved my friend's life. And mm. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating how well it works. Uh, people connect with each other all the time and they go through the the, the 12-step program. Right? I mean, um, only the first step of that program is, uh, is uh, stopping the use of drugs. Every other step is related to becoming a better person mm. and uh, trying to figure out your character defects and whatnot. And, uh, seeking, you know apologizing for what you've done and coming to terms with your life before and coming to terms with uh, the person you were and the person you want to be. A lot of self-discovery, stuff mm. like that. And, yeah. and it's like you, um, you walk into an NA or, NA or A or NA group and immediately people give you hugs. Right? Mm. I mean, it's, it's a very, like, very, like, super supportive uh, program, which is what you need if you want to get better, right? It's just, this, is, this is how an addict gets better. It's through support and love and uh, not stigmatization and connection. Not isolation, as we've discussed. Like this is, and this is why the policy that we have is it doesn't work. And this is why NA is so successful. NA is so successful is they they use the the connection, the uh, the uh, s- social support, and um, um, treating people like human, as sick people, as human beings, and not and not criminals. Right? Hmm. I mean, that's it's it's a no brainer. I mean, NA have have AA and NA have discovered like the key to somewhat helping these people. So.
1: Do you think the because the the AAs and NAs have a religious aspect to it? Do you think that's helpful in any sort of way?
0: Yeah, I mean, before I be, I mean, I think they've I believe, they've
1: tried to remove, they've slowly removed some of it, right? If no, I
0: no, I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm telling you, I don't remember why it was introduced. Like, I don't remember if the person who started it was religious. Not that's. I think that's, he was. I about, think
1: I think the the guy who started it was a Christian.
0: Yeah, so that, that's probably makes sense uh, why there's a religious aspect to it. But from what I understand, is that um, you know you have to give yourself up to a higher power, right? Mm. So um, and from uh, from what I believe, that is now open to interpretation. So mm. it's like your higher power can be whatever you want it to be. It could be God. It can be Sky Wizard. It can be the uh, be anything the energy of the universe, the, the trees, whatever your, your, your dead grandpa. I mean, it could be whatever you think there's a, a power higher than yourself that wants good for you mm. and wants, and, uh, and is kind of there to listen to you when no one else is, mm. right? It's just, it's kind of giving yourself up to, to giving your control In your power up to something else. I think there's something psychological about that. Whether you're an atheist or agnostic or or religious, there is something psychological, psychologically beneficial with prayer. Mm -hmm. I mean, this has been studied. Prayer is psychologically beneficial. Um, So, whether I wouldn't say it's a cult. I mean, from everything I've learned about it, it's not. I mean, it's it's it could be. I mean. I can understand how from an outside perspective, you don't know much about the 12-step program, it can be seen as a cult, but uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it is. And um, the people I know who have, who have used it successfully and have recovered, they definitely don't see it as a cult. Mm-hmm. There's nothing really culty about it. I mean, there's a psychological aspect about the higher power. That's, that's, that's the way I approach it. I mean, whether you want to be religious or not, it, there's benefits to prayer. And there's benefits to knowing thinking at the very least but there's someone up there who wants to help you and who wants to support you through what you're going through and is there to listen to you and wants the best for you. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's pretty simple.
1: Is the um, in terms of <clears throat> in terms of the NAAA, what what is it like for someone to go into it and um and to, to to express that that you know they have an addiction to I don't know whatever it is alcohol. Drugs. Is there? Is it that? Is it that the that environment can be created anywhere else, or is it just? Is it solely? Do you think in the AA and programs that you have this environment? You know, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example where, say, say so you and I are addicted, and say, and someone else, Amos, the editor of Kazingon Dialogue, is also addicted. You know, we get together. Can we create the same thing, or is there something unique about AA and
0: I mean that's a really good question. I mean I, I, I wish I really wish I I I'm like really more about the twelve steps and I and like more about in depth about this program. But from what I understand of it, it's not. I don't think there's like. I th- I think you very much can. I think you can mm. you can probably mimic it, in ways. I mean, does it have to be a twelve step program? I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I wish I I, I don't know i'm really qualified to talk about how if you were trying to create another program like that i mean group therapy is beneficial no matter Mm -hmm. how you put it but uh, but there's tons of group therapies it seems like na and aa have uh have some of the highest success rates in terms of group therapy so i mean you can i believe you can create a an na group yourself Mm -hmm. if you have if you have uh yeah. It's, 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 it's a, it's a good question. It's a good hmm. question. I, I, I believe you could probably just, if you, if you, if you uh, focus on the fundamental aspects and approaches that the program has, you probably could create your own. I don't I don't see why not.
1: How close do you think? I, I don't
0: think it has to be dogmatic like that. Right.
1: Know. Like you, you don't have to follow exactly as they're doing it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, this 12 step program have a lot of, like I said, it's the first step from what I, from what I read. The first step is, is, is stopping drugs. Um, Giving yourself, then it's giving yourself up to a higher power, learning something about yourself as a human being, your, your defects and how to, uh, acknowledge them, how to accept them, how to, how to better them, you know, um, apologizing to other people for what you've done and, um, you know, just being mindful of the the person you are, because as an addict, a lot of people, they, they say who, a lot of people say that when you're an addict, Mm -hmm. you, you don't um you don't really because your reward mechanism you don't as hijack we usually see addicts as bad people because of the because of bad things they do but it's really like again going back to the fact that addicts are sick people uh it's it's almost like they don't want to do some of the things they want to do but they have to do them because they need to get their 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 fix right so at, at, at the end of the day so um uh, i think there are I, I think there are addicts and i, I I think there are bad people and I think mm-hmm. there are bad people who are addicts and I think there are bad people who are not addicts, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think like, because you're an addict, you're automatically a bad person. I think addiction often makes you do things you don't want to do. Um, and uh, I think you start recognizing, it, like you start recognizing this once you're, uh, you know, you've gone through the program, I believe. So, I mean, mm-hmm. from, from what I've seen and uh, with like uh, the people who I know are, are in the program, they, it just makes you kind of, it makes you who you're supposed to be. Mm. Yeah, most, most of the time, if you're, you're not a bad person, right, you're just, you're sick. Right? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the way I see it. So. It's,
1: it it's definitely something where not, people who aren't even addicted to drugs probably don't even do it enough where you self-reflect and think, okay, what are some of the defects that I possibly have that I can work on? I mean, you don't even have to be an addict to, to do some of the things that they're doing. And it would have so much benefit on you as a person and, and, your, and your social connection.
0: Oh, I 100. I think like the amount of self re- self reflection people do in NA and AA, and the amount of like uh, mindfulness and honesty, open mindedness, people in NA and, and AA do, is uh, beneficial to, to everybody in society. I mean, it's just so intensive there that you're, you know, you find people who go to NA and NA and like recover, become some of the most um, um, some of the most honest people you'll meet, uh, mm-hmm. charitable people. So,
1: how close do you think we are to decriminalizing drugs in Canada, if at all?
0: Uh, I don't think we're close at all. <laughs> I don't think there's a chance. I mean, I
1: maybe in the next I, ten years. No, no, no? Chance.
2: no
0: chance.
1: Twenty-five. Decriminalizing
0: drugs in general. Yeah, yeah. No chance. Twenty-five. there will have to be some like massive enlightenment <laughs> to, wow. to happen in 25 years.
1: Why do you say, why do you say, why do you say no chance? Like why, why?
0: Because we've, drugs have been illegal for, um, look how long it's taken people to legalize marijuana.
2: Hmm. Decades upon
0: decades, upon decades, upon decades before people, certain States before Canada, like where we were, uh, we're comfortable with uh, with even like approaching that topic, right? Mm. And it, I, I mean, my background is a lot like policy and politics. It's not a very politically, and I'll, I'll give you my perspective. It's not a very politically, um, politically smart thing to do, right? I mean, what politician will be like, I'm going to legalize all drugs. What kind of support do you think they'll <laughs> have? I mean, people, it's, kind of like a political suicide, right. you know? Right? So, I mean, so how are we gonna change policies if the people who, this is like, I mean, democracy is the best system we, ha- we, we have, but this is a fundamental issue with democracy, is that, and I've worked for various politicians uh, throughout, throughout my life uh, as a political staffer. And um, I'm, I'm a happy uh, government bureaucrat now. <laughs> I'm not happy I'm not working with politicians anymore. But politicians never, and this is a fundamental issue. They never see past, uh, see further than the. They never see past their next election. Mm. So, the issue with democracy for me is that is that um, it's often policy is done. That's often good politics and bad policy. It's mm. rare that that something comes up that eventually becomes good policy and good politics. Marijuana became that. Mm. It became such a no brainer. In throughout society, that marijuana legalization became both good policy and good politics. But for 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 decades, it was good policy, bad politics, and you would never see anyone. I mean, like I said, the enlightenment it would take for for people, the utter understanding for people to 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 elect someone, to vote for someone who would be willing to uh, to, to to do such something so drastic. I mean, not. I'd be i'd I'd say hopefully
2: in our lifetime hopefully hopefully
1: man, wow, okay um is there do you have social media, Igor, that people can follow people, or are you like a social media hermit
0: I don't have social I have facebook <laughs> I, mean, I don't even, i don't even, I don't even have Twitter. Uh, uh, so there, or or Instagram. I don't know. None of that stuff. No <laughs> website.
1: There's no, no, ego no or...
0: nothing. Just if you, if you want it, anyone wants to have a chat, you can add me on Facebook. I'll, I'll be, I'll be super happy to chat with anybody.
1: Okay. Well, so no, no social media, but Igor has Facebook to message. I you. have
2: Facebook. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Man, brother, thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, it was awesome. You're,
0: you're so welcome. I'm, I'm really happy you had me on here. It was, uh, I finally, you know, like I said, an important topic and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm honored you'd have me on the podcast.
1: Super important. Thank you.